This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello everyone, I'm C.P. Leslie, the host of New Books and Historical Fiction, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today I'm speaking with Stephanie Cowell about her latest novel, The Boy in the Rain. In addition to three books set in Tudor and Stuart, England, Stephanie Cowell has written three exploring the lives of artists both famous and unknown. Her early novel, Marrying Mozart, envisioned the young composer's encounter with four sisters, all set on attracting his romantic interest. Claude and Camille examines the long and tempestuous relationship between Claude Monet and the young woman who abandoned her elevated social standing to live as his muse. Unlike those earlier protagonists, the heroes of the latest novel, The Boy in the Rain, are fictional. But their situation is all too real. The novel opens with a letter, October 1906, from Forest End, Nottinghamshire, England. To Holborn, London. My dearest Robbie, now that we've said goodbye, I must begin to accept that you won't come back. Still, I look for you, useless as it is. I prowl our rooms in the farmhouse, and every corner says to me, he's not here. I go into the bedroom. You're not sleeping under our quilt, covered to your eyes. I walk from room to room with the candles, searching wardrobes and attics. Find nothing. Nothing. I walk in the woods, not feeling the cold for a long time, and can't bear to return here. When I climb our stairs, I remember how you first climbed them to find me that October night. You were wearing that ridiculous coat, and I said, don't come in. But you wouldn't go, no matter how the risk made you hunch your shoulders. I can still see your anxious eyes and hear how you stammered for words. I should have known you would eventually leave. You wanted to paint, and you are painting now, and everything I predicted will come true for you. Still, things will be more dangerous in London. You know it. Be careful whom you trust. Don't be a young fool. If you fall into trouble, write me. And now, please join me in welcoming Stephanie Cowell. Hi, Stephanie. I look forward to talking with you today. Hi, Carolyn. Thank you for asking me. It's a pleasure to be here. How did you get started writing fiction, and what made you want to write novels in the first place? Oh, I think it was uh, because I I had a proverbial lonely childhood uh, 
being the only child till my and my sister was born when I was nine, and I I didn't see um, other people outside of my parents really, and uh, when I was not in school, and so I made up friends, and uh, the friends eventually started to to fit into stories, and that's really the way the whole thing started. Yeah, I mentioned was Madeline Langle, who was definitely a favorite of mine and many of our listeners, I expect. Um, how did you meet and what was that experience like? Oh, that was one of the most wonderful things in my life. I was struggling to um, uh, get a publisher for my first book. And a friend said to me, um, you know, she's teaching at this convent in my neighborhood. Madeline and I were both, or I am still, she was an Episcopalian. And so I finally got a place and I went up terribly nervous. And there was this woman who was five feet ten and I'm like five feet. <laughs> and uh, I did the first class and she gave us an assignment to write. And um, uh, something from the Bible um, based on, on the biblical story. And so I wrote it and she kept looking at me and saying, beautiful, just beautiful. And I was like, wow. So I said to her, with my heart in my mouth, will you read my novel, uh, my first novel? And uh, and she said, I will read your novel, because I nearly fainted. I uh, floated all the way home. Anyway, she loved it, and we became friends. And indirectly through her, um, I met my husband, who had been corresponding with her. And uh, we met, and we married, and she gave me away. And so it was a really a, a very wonderful um, wonderful relationship. She lived in a city less than a mile from where I live, and we would go up and cook for her, or she'd cook for us, and when we did the dishes, it was just one of the heavenly things in my life was having Madeline behind me, the main one. Yeah, she was wonderful. She had this whole series of memoirs about her life, as, in addition to the fiction that she's best known for. I remember reading them and... and um, Really thinking what a wonderful person she must be. She was she was so wonderful to me, and 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 at one point I had a I had a trouble with something in in my life, and she at that point was having a knee replaced, and I came to see her in the hospital, and I should have been consoling her, but instead she insisted and saying something to matter, what matter, tell me, uh, and so she was I called her Mama Madeline. So let's talk about your fiction a bit before we get to The Boy in, in the Rain. Uh, what inspired you to write Marrying Mozart, then Claude and Camille in particular? Oh, goodness. Well, um, Marrying Mozart, I I grew up with Mozart's operas, um, and I was a I was a soprano, a classical singer for many years. And uh, I sang a lot of Mozart, and I read a lot about Mozart, fascinated by him. And... Um, one day I decided I wanted to write a happy novel about him, and I had heard uh, that he had been involved with his family of four sisters, uh, one of whom he married, and I said, that sounds like something wonderful, and I I just loved writing that novel. I was It was very fast, and it was so happy for me. Now, Monet, um, in the 1990s, I think 1996, right, 1995, there was a there's an exhibition of the work of the uh, then very young professional maybe in their twenties and thirties uh, in the few years before anybody began to know who they were and as I walked through this exhibition and saw that two two had painted the same 
bag of flowers and one was, you know, had painted the same model and they slept on each other's floors and they were, nobody knew them and they were desperately poor and they were pulling each other along. I became so drawn into the friendship of this circle of um, young artists who eventually would become the Impressionists. And and what they what they meant to one another that was the that was the real starting point of it, and then of course later as I walked to the exhibition I saw this beautiful picture called Woolen in a Green Dress and that of course was Camille um, so he's uh, the novelist called Claude and Camille and um, she was uh, well whether she was a uh, she was not not easy to write I had to. Um, do a lot of thinking, researching, and imagining, because not much is known of her. But it was a great passion for me. Great passion. I made that one very much. Uh, I still have Marie Mozart on my list, but I really enjoyed Claude and Camille. Uh, and I really enjoyed this one. So I was interested to find out from the note at the back of the book, The Boy in the Rain, um, that although this is the sixth of your novels to be published, and is also, in a sense, your first so tell us how these characters made their appearance and why it took so long to bring them into fictional life. Oh, my goodness. Well, uh, I was uh, I was a singer at the time, and, and I had been a writer years before, and I thought I would go back to it, you know, when I was much older, but I'd finished all my singing. And I was in the country, country at a country house, and as I walked down these wooden steps, I saw, or I thought I saw, two men, one slightly older, in Edwardian clothes, standing on the step. And when I looked back, they were, of course, gone. And I, I went down to join my friends who were swimming in the, in the book, uh, tremendously shaken, given that something had happened to me. And uh, eventually, a uh, short while later, I, I they haunted me. So I confided with two, two friends, and they made me a bet to see if I could write this thing down. And I did, and it was just terrible. I didn't know how to write. It was very short. It was not deep. It didn't have much of a plot. It was, you know, whoever knew that it would eventually, um, after many years. I, I, did you say you, you wanted to know what how it eventually got published? Or was that not part of the this particular question? Well, that's how it eventually got published, just how it eventually came, how you were able to turn it into the story that it became. Because we all have, or at least I assume most of us have uh, first novels or even second and third novels it's hiding in folders in our computer. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> that have never quite gotten, you know, they've never quite gelled. <laughs> they never quite gelled. Well, I was just so passionate about this and and um, I, I kept almost selling it. This was a very, very early version. Thank God it didn't sell then, you know, because it, it wasn't ready. And and people would, would take other things, and I began, I began my career um, with a book called Nicholas Cook, um, which did very nicely about an Elizabethan boy. And I kept um, going back every four or five years. I would go back and I would work on, on the book that became The Boy in the Rain. And... Uh, unfortunately, uh, and I would take it out about every four or five years to show it to a few people, and they say, you've got to publish it. So I would I would go to my agent at the time, or my publisher at the time, and they'd say, oh, no, 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 no not this. You know, not, not, not this. And so I would get very upset and sort of fill it back in literally 
could print out in the closet, which is where I kept it. And uh, then four or five years later, I take it out again and I I make it stronger and make it deeper. And and um, and I would once again share it with friends and they'd say, you have to publish this book. And then I would go to some editors and agents and they'd say, oh, no, 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 not this book. Another book, not this book. So uh, during the, um, and then I had an agent who almost sold it. And then during the time of COVID, when I was much alone in my New York City apartment, I really, you know, at that time, uh, there was a very, we were the epicenter of, of COVID at that time. And from my window, I would hear the ambulances all day long. And I had this sense that life wasn't forever. And I said to myself, if there's one more book I want to finish, one book, it's this. So I sat here and I pulled everything I had into putting this book together and uh, sent it to a, a friend of mine. And he said, listen, he said, don't go to a big house. He said, they, they'll, they'll, they'll be afraid it's too much of a risk. You know, they want Claude and Camille again. And that's not what you want to do. So here's a little house, a uh, little uh, indie press. Uh, and I think they would love it. And so I sent it off to them. And sure enough, they took it immediately. And so I think, you know, it all worked out the way it was supposed to be because it would never have, have probably in the book it became uh, had I not gone through that long transition time in which so much happened to me. You know, I, I, I had love, I had loss. I, I married somebody I, I loved dearly. Unfortunately, I lost him. He loved this book. And so many, many things happened during the writing of this book, which all, everything contributed, I believe, in some mystical way um, from the from the very first strange vision uh, on the stairs uh, to um, people writing me today saying, I love your book, which is so thrilling to me, really. Oh, I'm sure it has. And the world has changed in a sense. I mean, I think the the ability to appreciate this book is probably much greater now than it was when you started writing it. Well, I, I don't I don't know. I mean, I, I think I think the problem was that the publishers just didn't see how to market it. And it also wasn't as developed um as it as it became. It really became dramatically very developed when I had that sense of this is this is, don't tell me what publishes what you want me to do. I want to do what is, what is crying to be done. And I think that's really quite the ideas because I think we're sent specific stories, specific characters, and they're sent to us to come through us, and we must obey that. Uh, it's a deep cry of the heart. Anyway, that's the way it's for me and my friends. No, I think that's a very good point. And of course, you know, as we go through things, I mean, we can approach the writing differently. Um, and also, we, you know, you learn about writing by writing. So the more you do it, so sometimes the first books are the hardest to get to because they start off in a place where you don't have the craft to bring them to life. And it takes a long time to really figure out what the book needs, what the characters need. I would agree, absolutely. So what made you decide to set the novel in Nottinghamshire, circa 1900, which is when the book starts? The letter that I read at the very beginning um, in the introduction is later in the story. Uh, um, well, you know, um, I'm not 
sure because so much of this book is the beginnings of this book and certain things about this book and how the things came to be are sort of lost in history because it it was started in I think eighty four, nineteen eighty four, and I don't remember why I made certain choices. I I wanted to be set in the I mean you don't want it always was set in the country and I think it it was set um in, in a certain way emotionally in this old farmhouse I used to stay in uh, when I was first discovering myself and my freedom as a teenager, even though that farmhouse is in the state. Um, but I think, it, I think it came out of that. And then now I'm sure, I'm not sure. I have absolutely no idea. I think I wanted uh, some place you could travel to from London in a day. I just, I, I, the beginning is just so obscure, and particularly when they're lost. Uh, one day will come to me, and I'll call you up and say, I remember. <laughs> <laughs> That's why <laughs> I can appreciate that. <laughs> Tell us then about Robert Stillman, aka Robbie, uh, who is the central character uh, as he is now uh, in his most recent fully developed um, <laughs> incarnation, because he is the boy in the rain of the novel's title. We meet him at age eighteen. Eighteen. Well, at eighteen, Robbie has had a, a really hard life. He's a He's a, a really artistic kid. Um, his uncle wants him to be. He's raised by his uncle uh, because his mother has has died young. Um, his father uh, impregnated her and disappeared. And uh, he is very artistic, and of course, he's secretly drawn to um, emotionally sexuating men. And of course, at that time, uh, you you didn't say that there was no internet. Um, to, you know, commiserate with other people. This is what I'm feeling. Who am I? Uh, you, you really kept it inside yourself. And, you know, and um, I did have to see that his uncle was furious that he wouldn't go tell it. What is this art? Are these for girls? Um, he, I guess he never heard of the <laughs> recollect. Look, he was really pretty ignorant. And so uh, they have a big fight and he destroys Robbie's artwork, which is horrible, horrible. And Robbie in turn goes in and slashes up a lot of the wool. He's going to make it suit. The uncle is going to make it So uh, the uncle sends him away um, to be tutored to go to the university. Uh, and in those days, boys um, often uh, were lived with, with clergymen who tutored them in Latin or whatever else you needed to go to university for a little extra money. And this is a very kind man, uh, the Reverend Langstaff. Um, he has no children, um, the, the boys and, and the girls, the girls actually in his church that he teaches are his family. And so that is how, that is how Robbie, uh, that is how Robbie begins. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Yes, and the Reverend George Langstaff, the clergyman, actually becomes a kind of surrogate father to Robbie, I think we could say. Oh, absolutely, yeah. He does, he does, and uh, and and Robbie and uh, 
And then Anton, of course, is the other young man in the story who has known the Ripon Langstaff since his boyhood. Is there, he, uh, Robbie, and and and, and Anton become also uh, Langstaff family. Um, a very strange, wonderful, unique family. Um, yes, Langstaff is the one who introduces Robbie to Anton Harrington. Yes, absolutely. Thinks he could use an older friend, as Langstaff is. No conception is such a thing of as love between men, um, except the school schoolboy nonsense, as he puts it. He and he thinks that they grow out of it, and um, the the Oscar Wilde trial and the Oscar Wilde um, existence, um was only a few years before. As a matter of fact, I just discovered that Oscar Wilde. I had no idea of this. Oscar Wilde died in Paris, his health totally broken by having been in prison. He died the very month that Lobby comes to Nottinghamshire. And that was totally, I had no idea. I was just researching um, Wilde's death the other day. And I said, what? Oh, my goodness. What a wild yeah. coincidence. Yes. It's a wild, wild coincidence. And, and um, uh, but, uh, yeah. So introduce us to Anton. From the very beginning, he has more to lose, uh, in part because he's older, and um, but he's also more conflicted. Well, Anton is is a man who um, grew up, I think, trying to please his father, even though his father was brutal to him, and it, it does things that will just rule Anton's life for a long time until he learns to let them go. And Anton has, in a way, made himself into what his father wants in an attempt, uh, that helpless attempt to um, please someone who can never be really pleased. And Anton is very brilliant, and he does everything very brilliantly. He goes to banker, he's very handsome, he sings on... He can manage anything, knows the language of He's one of these people that is so perfect outside, but the inside he's falling apart. And his, his, great, his marriage is ended to this lovely woman who maybe become very important in the book. And so he, but he's absolutely kidding you, the fact that he, he really would prefer to, to be in love with a man. And uh, after a little bit of time, he finds himself shockingly drawn to Robbie and doesn't really know what to do with it because he's still trying to make himself into this man he feels he should be. And one of the things he should be is a married man with a wife, had sexual and children, and that's not what's showing up for him. It's profound conflict. It's very interesting to to write um, a character so, so profoundly um, conflicted from, from a very early age. He really is. And yet at, my sense of him was also that part of it is that he, maybe because he's older, maybe because of, um, you know, he's been in banking and stuff like that. He seems to be more aware than Robbie is about the, the real danger of their love. Um, and you've mentioned Oscar Wilde, and I think most people have probably heard about that. But 
Imprisonment itself in 1906 was not what we think of now. I mean, it's not a pleasant experience now, and especially as we found out during COVID, it can be a very deadly experience, even if you just have not yet. But it was much, the conditions of imprisonment were much worse in 1906. Could you tell us a little bit about that historical background? Well, it was really so awful. I mean, I think particularly for um, men convicted of homosexuality. It's very funny to think of being convicted of homosexuality, but they, you know, and, and very often these men were, lots of men were not touched in any way, or they had tolerant neighbors and nobody cared or something, but sometimes they would set up a man um, and with witnesses to pardon kissing another man and then off to prison. Even going to prison was just awful. I think at the time of Wild where it was a little cell and had a plank bed and um, food was dreadful and it was solitary confinement for three months. And I, I just can't imagine, I mean, for Oscar Wilder was the, the toast of the of London society and a brilliant, brilliant man and a family lad who actually was married and had two sons he adored. And of course, you went away um, from the son to the disgrace was so much the sons had to change their name, the wife had to change their name, because it was such a scandal. I mean, it, it's incredible to think about, but, they, but, but then they would, uh, these poor men would, would do hard labor. Uh, they would work on a treadmill, which was endlessly climbing and uh, doing nothing, and um, they very badly. Um, SRS not allowed to receive visitors, not allowed to write, and I, I just don't know why they didn't have a total, total breakdown. Um, many men did die shortly afterwards or lost their health for their life because a, a man who was especially a man who was a laborer wasn't used to doing that physical labor um, and it, it would kill people and they just were so, the law was so morally against um, homosexuality that, that they really thought it was just such a, a dreadful moral and social crime that it's horrible um Stuff would, would be done to them, and it was even went on, I think, until 1967, they finally repealed the law. Of course, it hadn't been so harsh in the, in the last, um, it was awful, in your life, in your career, and, and it happened um, to Alan Turing, also, of course, from the imitation game, uh, and it's a head of state, and he saved Britain during the war, and still, they did just horrible things to him, because it happened to to love men and, and not women. You know, I get amazing to me, even looking back. In the Nottingham village, however, people are more inclined to live and let live. I think in part they may be oblivious because people tended not to think about that as a possibility. But in any case, it's not Rombie's relationship with Anton that is as much of an issue as Anton's socialist past, which given that he's now a banker, um, I know you've hinted that this has something to do with his relationship with his father, and we don't want to go too much into that because a lot of finding out what makes Anton tick is is part of the the um, journey in the book. But um, let's talk a little bit about the labor situation um, and how it made people find socialism appealing, because I think from a modern viewpoint, we tend to think of it, you know, post-Bolshevik, and so it's 
it's not as obvious why people would embrace it. Oh, well, goodness, I suppose you think is, I think Marxism and that communism enforced is, is, is a different thing altogether than simply uh, taxing, uh, raising uh, the taxes on, on the wealthy to uh, mitigate the hardships of the poor. And the fact was that if, uh, if somebody worked as a plowman, generally, or something like that, in a farm, I mean, he would only get like 14 shillings a week. And he would have, of course, five or six, seven children, because there was very little birth control then. And, and they would have nothing but, but bread and dripping, which is like this kind of bacon, um, grease, and uh, tea, maybe. And they would all be very malnourished. And it was just awful. It could be uh, people were sleeping on the streets. And Ali Anton, from the very beginning, sees uh, this as well. Even when he's a boy of 16, um, he starts off to be socialist. And, of course, that is a put paid by his father. Um, and uh, uh, he gives up on it. And, and he feels he can never go back to it. And uh, his journey back to it, which is through Robbie, through Robbie's encouragement, through Robbie's all the things that happened in between them, he goes back to it, and going back to it, you know, makes some makes some trouble. One of the interesting things to me about this novel is that it's not only about Robbie's relationship with Anton; it's also and even uh, all only about Anton's finding his way back to the person he needs to be. It's also about Robbie uh, growing up as an artist and just growing up in general. He does have genuine artistic talent. Um, you grew up around artists, as you note on your website. What can you tell us about that element of Robbie's life? I think when you're an artist, when you're a writer, um, or anything like that, it comes through you, and you simply must do it. And I think the 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 the, um, the men have um, the young men have conflicts with one another, and um, one one is in, in generality, you know, with Robbie. It's he both wants to be adored, taken care of, you know. Um, in other words, the younger one, you know that, and and then he also needs needs to go out and prove that he's a man in the world, and and he and and he make money with his art and throw himself into the world of trying to make money from an art is it's very difficult. But he he feels he needs to be more than than Anton's Anton's boy, and he does he does uh, become. Oddly, with the, with the, not too much of a plot spoiler, but obviously somehow through Anton's um, uh, divorced wife, it helps him a bit, and uh, he becomes a, a charming uh, portrait and just makes a lot of money and a lot of connections. He realizes he's so charming, he rises very fast, but he, he, he's, he's a really artistic spirit, and and he needs to, he will probably be a, a wanderer and an explorer in his art for all his life, changing and growing, as we do as, as, as writers. Are there any other characters or incidents that I haven't mentioned that you would like listeners to hear about? Because we're getting about to the point in the story where we probably don't want to say too much more about the mains. Well, there are um, there, there are um, a couple of very strong women characters. One is, is Anton's divorced wife, who's quite a strong person and absolutely... Um, comes to adore Robbie, and he comes to adore her, and there's another sort of family situation there, and utterly unexpected. Um, and then there is a, a, a lovely 
young art student called Annie, who becomes Robbie's best friend in London. Annie, Annie is, is also struggling um, as, as an artist, and uh, he, they, 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 bond, they bond together. What would you like people to take away from The Boy in the Rain? I'm so fascinated by um, the intricacies of a relationship between two people. I want this. No, I don't want it. You want that. I'll support you in that. No, that thing that keep me. And so it was very, very interesting to see it, you know, so with, with, with two men uh, rather than, than the man and the woman. So I think that the, I'd like people to, to take away a sense of how complicated, wonderful, but complicated, great love can be. That's what I'd like. Are you already working on another book? This one came out just a few months ago. Well, this is going to sound absolutely crazy, but, but I've already contracted for the next book, which I finished, and it's about um, uh, the Bronte sisters. Um, and uh, when Emily is, um, sorry, when Charlotte is first beginning to struggle to write her, her novels, uh, Emily is wandering around in the moor and finds um, a man in a stone cottage uh, who no one else has ever seen. I heard it's called The Man in the Stone Cottage. I mean, they really was excited when the publisher said right away, yes, I want this. So, <laughs> well, it's wonderful words. You don't hear those words too often in publishing, but it's really great. So, um, yeah, so that's out, that's out there, and I'll be, you know, starting the um, um, formatting in, the, in my last revision, copy editing, all that. So, that seems like almost impossible, you know, because I... And so much with Robbie, every moment of my life, I need the boy in the rain. Totally. That's wonderful. Congratulations. Well, I'll look forward to seeing it. Um, and thank you so much for sharing your time with us today, Stephanie. Well, thank you so much for having me on your program. Thank you for listening to our podcast. Once again, I am C.P. Leslie, the host of New Books and Historical Fiction, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. And today I've been talking with Stephanie Cowell about the boy in the rain. Find out more about her at stephaniecowell.com. Like us on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok at New Books Network. You can find out more about me and my books at cplesley.com, where I blog about the interviews and in general discuss history, historical fiction, and the rapidly changing publishing industry. Goodbye until my next conversation about historical fiction on the New Books Network.